Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. I absolutely love bees. I have a hive at home and it's just so rewarding seeing the bees fly in and out and seeing all the pollen they come back with and just observing how they all work together as a community. Do your bees produce a lot of honey? They do and I typically just leave it for them but I extracted some off this year and it tastes amazing. Nau mai, haere mai, ki tō tātou au hurihuri. Welcome to Our Changing World, ko Klerken Kanana Ho. We've got two stories for you this week. Later we'll hear from Katie Gossett about how native plants could help reduce E. coli contamination in our soils. But first, Dr Megan Granger, senior lecturer at the University of Waikato, is a big fan of bees and honey. Although I always joke that the smell of honey just reminds me too much of work. <laughs> She's done a lot of research into honey throughout her career, including work investigating methylglyoxal, the compound involved in the antibacterial activity that makes manuka honey so highly prized. It is a huge industry, so it's a multi-million dollar industry in fact, and uh, the price of manuka compared to clover is huge. So in 2019-2020 season, the price of bulk honey for a clover was around $2.50 to $5.50 per kg compared to a manuka honey which was sold for anywhere between $4.50 to $130 per kg bulk and that really large price difference is due to the non-peroxide antibacterial property or NPA or maybe you know it as UMF on the jar, and the higher this number, the more antibacterial activity the honey has, so it sells for a higher price. I caught up with Megan to learn about her latest work, investigating the elemental fingerprint of honey. I really wanted to address the issue of finding the origin of where a honey come from, whether it be from New Zealand, Australia, China, Japan, and one way of doing this is by looking at a fingerprint. And actually, this work kind of brings together her PhD work on honey, but also her master's research, which was on something quite different. I was trying to take two pieces of automotive glass and find a fingerprint to see if you could tell if two pieces of glass were the same or different with the hope of being able to use this for, say, hit-and-run incidences where you'd find glass on the road and then maybe on someone's uh, clothing. So you show up at a scene, there's glass everywhere, and that you'd be able to identify where that glass came from, where it was made? Yeah, correct. Uh, I was able to work out using an elemental fingerprint, so elements such as calcium, iron, zinc, manganese, and look at the different levels and concentrations of each of these and figure out whether it was the glass was made in Australia or Germany or wherever it came from. So how does this elemental fingerprinting work? The periodic table has all our elements on it and depending on an 
area in the world, our soils will be made up with different concentrations of particular elements. And so therefore we are able to use this and analyze whether it be the glass or honey. It's been done with other foods such as meats and milks, wine, um, to be able to detect differences in these concentrations, to know the area that the sample originated from. And a lot of this comes down to the rock source. So the rock um, and soil and plants or animals will take these up and um, we can see these differences. So it's not a case of this element is present in this area and this other element is present in this other area. It's the relative amounts or concentrations of the different elements that you're looking at. Correct. So the more elements that we are able to detect, the more chance we have of seeing differences across the board. And using inductively coupled plasma mass spec, or ICPMS for short, it's able to detect most of the elements on the periodic table. So in one sample, we're able to analyze all of them at once. Are there some elements that are more helpful than others in terms of fingerprinting? Yeah, so if we're looking at elements that have come from the soil, we're looking at um, sodium, iron, zinc, chromium. Whereas if we're looking for anthropogenic contamination, we're more looking at cadmium, arsenic, lead and mercury. And these ones are often due to human influence, so therefore we might see point sources in some areas, they might be higher uh, due to, say, agricultural or horticultural activity that is happening. And so we will see them in one area, but not across, say, an entire region. So it's these other trace elements that are more helpful to find geographical origins. It is a mouthful of a name for the equipment inductively coupled plasma mass spectrometer. We'll get back to it in a bit. But analytical chemists in the know, like Megan, often just shorten it to mass spec. So using the mass spec, looking at all of these elements, helped Megan with two big questions. First, to see whether the elemental fingerprints of New Zealand honey are different between regions and between New Zealand and other countries. And second, to see if any of these elements that are linked to human activity were showing up in the honey. For this first question, Megan took about 200 New Zealand honeys from across the North Island and saw that she was able to distinguish between different regions like Waikato, Bay of Plenty and Auckland. And then I thought, well, if we can do this, can we actually distinguish New Zealand honey from other countries? And... I happen to have a colleague at Waikato who has a colleague overseas and we found out that he collects honey just for fun (laughs) and so he sent his selection of honeys over to me and I started analysing them and we found that we can actually determine the difference between New Zealand and international honey. And this means that ultimately you'd be able to take honey if somebody gave you some mystery honey and you'd be able to analyze it and say, well, analysis suggests that this is where this honey comes from, no matter what the label says. Exactly, Um, that's exactly why 
we want to do this work because it'll be really beneficial for New Zealand. And by using ICPMS, we can detect a lot of elements simultaneously on the mass spec and therefore we've got a whole lot of information we can use in a relatively short time frame, whereas often other um, analyses require each compound to be analysed individually and so it takes a lot longer. And while uh, trace element fingerprinting might not be the only way to do this, it's definitely a nice, quick, efficient way as maybe a first port of call or to use with other compounds as well. I asked Megan to show me the ICPMS, the mass spec, which is in a special room just down the corridor. So in here we keep the place as dust free as possible so that we don't have any contamination. So we've got, as you can probably hear, the sticky mat mm. as we walked over and it just takes any dust off our feet and that's just to prevent any dust particulates getting into our sample because the ICP is able to detect down to parts per trillion. So if we get a little speck of dust in there, we might be contaminating our results. And as you can hear, it is quite noisy in here. So that is the sound of our vacuum and turbo pumps. And so for the mass spec to work, we need to have all the atmosphere removed so that our ions can travel through without being interrupted and hitting into any background and so these pumps are just giving us a vacuum in the mass spec. Megan mentions ions here. These are charged atoms and this is key to what is happening inside this equipment. Samples of liquid honey are ionized by the plasma which is close to the temperature of the surface of the sun. And this plasma is so energetic that the atoms of each element become charged or ionized. The atoms are pulled into the vacuum and accelerated using an electric field. And they can then be separated by their mass to charge ratio, with each element having a specific ratio. So iron will have one mass to charge ratio, magnesium another, etc, etc and this happens really quickly. So we're able to scan across 30 elements within a few uh, milliseconds almost. So Megan has been looking at those elements that will help her identify where the honey has come from. But she's also been using this technique to look for others too. We're also quite interested in heavy metals. So these are the ones that are potentially from anthropogenic activity and we will also look at rare earth elements. So these are ones that are in quite low levels, uh, in potentially in the soil and in rock. And have you been finding any of these man-made heavy metals in the honey samples? I have been seeing some of them. So the hive is quite a good proxy for environmental uh, contamination because the bees fly in a known radius, generally about seven kilometers from the hive, um, but closer if they have good food source. And so they all are out foraging and are intimately involved with the environment. And this means that when they come back, they potentially have dust on them and the honey might have, or the nectar at that point, might have elements in it and it all comes back into the hive. So when we test the honey, we can see these potentially elevated levels. 
And I have found um, instances of um, lead and cadmium, and while we see them, they are not in huge concentration, so there's nothing to worry about. And as I said before, we have the capacity to look at parts per trillion. So, But we do interestingly see cadmium crop up more so in the Waikato region uh, due to probably the historic effects of superphosphate application on agricultural land. This finding has actually sparked a new avenue of research for Megan, investigating something she thinks might be a factor in honeybee population and colony health decline in Aotearoa and around the world. Finding heavy metals in honey made me think the honey is used as a food source for the bee, so if the bees are eating it, what is it doing to the bee? And part of what I'm looking at is taking the brain from the bee and then analysing it using ICPMS, but this time instead of using solution, where we want to get a spatial distribution of elements across the brain surface. So we're using something called laser ablation as the front end, as the sample introduction for the ICPMS. And that is what this large piece of equipment here is. It looks pretty intimidating. (laughs) There's a lot of danger signs on it. The laser essentially blasts a tiny point in the bee's brain so that the sample becomes ablated or vaporised. And that is then sent into the mass spec to get the readings of what elements are in there in which quantities. Which Megan can then overlay over a photo of the bee brain, giving her a map of the concentrations of different elements in specific parts of the brain. So we want to find out are these elements sitting maybe in the optical lobes or in the mushroom bodies and then from knowing where in the brain it's sitting we might be able to figure out what kind of implication this has for the bee. And we're talking tiny tiny areas that you're looking at right? We are indeed. So a bee brain is about two to three milligrams and it's about the size of a sesame seed. So it makes uh, dissecting the brain quite difficult. Yeah, you need to have a steady hand. (laughs) It's early days for this work, but Megan has just secured funding and has plans for much more research to come to figure out if and how these heavy metals are impacting the bees. We want to look at three different levels of the bee. So first off, we want to look at the cellular level. So I have a master's student who is currently creating a b-cell line in the lab so that we can then take these cells and introduce elements into the media in which they're growing and then see if any of the elements are taken up into the cell and then we also want to take bees and put them in cages in the lab and feed them sugar syrup which has a particular element added to it to see if these are taken up into the brain. And then after, or maybe alongside that, what we also want to do is have hives around the country in areas where there potentially could be slightly elevated levels of, say, arsenic or cadmium or lead or mercury and um, see what happens over succession of years to the hives. So if, for example, an element causes a bee not to be able to forage as well. It might 
bring in poorer food choices for the entire colony and over time this might be detrimental to the hive. Alright, lots of questions to answer. <laughs> a lot to do. <laughs> I'm, I'm lucky that I have such a great research team with me helping out. <laughs> Thanks to Dr. Megan Granger, Senior Lecturer in Analytical and Environmental Chemistry at the University of Waikato in Kirikiriroa, Hamilton. Now, of course, honey isn't the only natural antibacterial agent. And in our second story today, Katie Gossett meets a scientist who's studying the antimicrobial properties of some native New Zealand plant species and how they might help reduce bacterial contamination caused by dairy effluent. Hossein Alizode loves plants. I had lots of them. Even uh, some plants I have here, they hunt insects. They are very interesting. We're in his small office at the Bioprotection Research Centre that's based at Lincoln University, and he has no fewer than nine plants. I've counted them. Wherever I see very good plant, I bring it and uh, multiply and keep it. Recently, I found that I have lots of plants in my office. I can't uh, keep them. I took some of them at house. And plants are the common thread in a career that really began back when he was a boy in Iran. When I was a child, I found that uh, my passion is biology. I really like to work in this area. And later, when I came to high school and university, found that it is the area I really like. Recently, I found that absolutely soil, because a healthy soil means healthy food, means healthy people and water, you know. They are all important. And we are living on the planet. And actually, uh, the soil is a very good and important area. It's a passion that's taken him through a few different areas of study. I've changed my topic a lot. I, I would tell you my bachelor degree was plant protection. My master was plant pathology. I did my PhD in biotechnology at the Canterbury University. And then perhaps naturally for someone fascinated by plants and soil, he's ended up here at Lincoln University. Because Lincoln is a land-based university and this is the area I'm working and I wanted to do something related to environment, to agriculture, just develop some method which is beneficial in this area. And it looks like he's come up with something, an experiment that uses native plants to tackle a particular problem in the dairy sector. I've been working with farmers and I found that urine patches and effluent is a, a main problem and nitrate leaching, of course, because of our pastures. So I was thinking how we can deal with that. One would be uh, be present in the, the effluent uh, and we were working on that using some bioactive native uh, plants to reduce uh, the population of those microbes in soil. So why use native plants? Well, an initial trial involved 12 different species. Things like harakeke, kawakawa, spaniard, horopito, swamp, manuka and northern rata, just to name some of them. And they got chosen for a few different reasons. Some had a really strong smell. Others were poisonous. And then some were chosen because they'd already been noted and prized by Māori for particular qualities. Mostly it came based on indigenous knowledge because Māori are using some plants for as medicinal plants. Some of them, like they, they could heal some wounds or could kill pathogens. 
So to give you an example, if you listen to this early RNZ Spectrum documentary, hear Tafau Tiake, a kaumatua from Naituhoe, recalls a story about a tohanga, or traditional healer, who used the bark of the rata to cure a sickness. In the time she was in my area, in Waimana, I was the orderly to go to the bush to get her material. You know what she used? Bark of a rata. That's all I had to get for her. And she told me, again, go to the eastern side of the rata and cut a big long bark. And I did. Rolled it up, put in the sugar bag, and I brought it home. And then she said to me, now, I want a pig. Well, pigs are very, very dear. And all she wanted from that pig is the gall to go with that rata bark. And she boiled this. And then we have to drink. Everyone who lived in that place had to drink from it. And so a trial began of the 12 different plants. Hussein and other researchers from the Bioprotection Research Centre, ESR, and the University of Canterbury worked in partnership with Na Muka Development Trust and Matahuru Marai in Waikato. The first step was testing leaf extracts. Maybe when the leaves fall on the soil, if they have any compound, any antibacterial compound, they might be released into soil as well. So we were trying to test these plants for the first time and see if they could reduce the number of those pathogens. And sure enough, of those 12 initial plants, when the leaf extracts were tested, northern rata, swamp manuka and horopito all showed antimicrobial qualities. Extracts from those three plants were able to reduce, I would say, like uh, more than 90% with horopito and rata. And also with swamp manuka, we got very good reduction in growth. It was time to move on to the next phase of research. Because you don't know until you start some uh, experiments. So when we got those uh, interesting results from leaf extracts, then uh, it was time we take the result to do some pot experiment. What we did, we sowed plants in pots and we inoculated soil with uh, E. coli. Then uh, at different times we started quantifying uh, E. coli number in soil. As part of the experiment, the team watered the plants to simulate rainfall. They then tested for E. coli on days 1, 3, 7, 14 and 21. At the end of that, we found that both native plants, Swam, Manuka and Northern Rata, they were able, after 14 days, reduce E. coli number by 90%. While for perennial ryegrass, which we used as control, it takes around 45 days to reduce 90% of E. coli numbers. With some solid evidence that the tests are working, Hossein is now readying another phase of the project. And we head to the lab for a closer look. Here is uh, the lab we are working. We are doing a number of experiments. Uh, so it's a very promising result uh, and could use these uh, plants in riparian planting or some uh, areas could be used to remove E. coli numbers uh, from soil. But there's more work to do on this project and here in the lab the next step for Hossein is to do with plant exudates. These are a type of fluid that is secreted by the roots of the plant. 
Exudates means that uh, when root is in soil, might release some compounds. Those compounds might have antimicrobial activity against some pathogens. Uh, we are not sure currently that the reduction in number of uh, E. coli in soil was because of some compounds which uh, are released from root, which I call them exudates here, or maybe was because of pH change in soil. Because on uh, the same experiment, when uh, we measured pH, we found that these plants could increase acidity of soil, and microbes don't like acidity condition. Maybe that has been a reason to reduce the number of uh, E. coli in soil, or whether it is an antimicrobial compound needs to be tested, and that's what we are going to do. So we have some tissue culture jar here. We are uh, sowing plants inside those MS media. Then when plants start growing, we will collect uh, exudates and we will test them against some bacterial pathogens. So tell me what, what we can see there in the jar. What does it look like? That one is a Manuka seedling. I did it uh, like a few months ago. I saw a seed in the medium, so it started growing. It is not uh, big enough. I will leave it for a while, maybe a few months uh, further. And after that, we will start collecting all exudates from root, and we will assess their effect on some pathogens. So it's from the look of it, what is it, a couple of centimetres? Yeah, uh, it's a couple of centimetres, yeah. It uh, might not have much uh, exudates from that. Have to leave it for a longer time. Because plant growth stage should be important in releasing those exudates as well, we believe. So we have to test them when plants are well developed. He's also extended the experiment to some other native plants. I have canuka as well here, as you see, just growing quite small and maybe takes a bit time to grow properly. So have to be patient and leave them for a while. And when they grow, then we will start uh, identifying compounds in their exudates. And no matter how slowly the plants grow, the lab is an environment where Hossein is in his element. When I wake up in the morning, I really like, I can't wait to reach to my work and come to lab, do some work, because very keen to see results. Sometimes you design something and you are very keen to go and see whether it is working or not and give some motivation every day. And for me, I never get tired to do research at university. Back in his office, the sun has burst out and we take another look at his plant collection. He even had a date tree in here at one point. You see, my office uh, is like a forest. I, I live actually with plants. <laughs> there is more to do on this experiment. As you heard, it's still not entirely clear what it is about the native plants that reduces the E. coli concentration, whether it's the acidity, something in the plant exudate, or maybe even something else. We have other ideas as well. Even we were thinking maybe plant is releasing even a gas, a volatile compound to control those microbes. We don't know. And we are testing one by one to find out why is reducing the population of microbes. While the early results show that the natives could be useful, they do have some limitations. So when the soil is heavily saturated, there's a risk that E. coli could leach out quickly before the plants have a chance to dilute or destroy it. 
if we have plant over there, root exudate is there in soil, it needs some time to interact with the pathogen in soil. I mean, when we have a saturated condition or irrigation levels quite high, might just wash off everything from soil and, you know, the pathogen runoff from soil and doesn't have time to interact with those antibacterial compounds to to be killed so easily they can uh, make a risk and they go you know run off from uh, so that would be an issue so we need to manage it and while farmers can't do much about rain they could change their irrigation schedules it is necessary to know that if we have a heavy rain or if we irrigate uh, a lot when we have effluent over there is not going to work so we can manage it based on that so work will carry on and Hossein already has field trials planned. Any setbacks are just part of the fascination for him as he explores the endless potential of plants. They are everything. Without plants, we can't survive. Thanks, Katie. That was Katie Gossett speaking with Hazain Alizodeh from the Bioprotection Research Centre based at Lincoln University. This episode was produced by Katie Gossett and me, Claire Kincannon. Thanks to Liz Garten for editing help. Sound engineering was by Alex Harmer and Steve Burge. Tim Watkin is the executive producer of podcasts and series at RNZ. You can follow the Our Changing World podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Check out the show's website at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld for photos and links related to this episode. And you'll also find our extensive back catalogue of hundreds of episodes, which you can listen to for free. And if you want to get in touch with us, we're on Facebook or Twitter at RNZ Science. Come and say hi. Did you know that RNZ also have an extensive catalogue of podcasts on many topics? You can search through them by clicking on the Podcasts and Series tab on the main RNZ webpage. And if you haven't discovered it yet, I recommend the Sci-Fi Sci-Fact series. Experts in material science take an idea from fiction, like Iron Man's suit, and see whether and how it could exist in real life. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. Kia pai, tō wiki.